You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Monday, August 24, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by managing editor Ed Harrison. But first, the day's stories from Jack Farley. Thanks, Ash. The Chicago Fed National Activity Index posted a positive reading of 1.18 for July. While this figure is above zero, meaning that the nation's economy is growing at a faster than average rate, this was below the record high of 5.33 in June, as well as the 3.7 that was expected for July. Despite this mediocre reading, U.S. equities were unfazed. They opened strong this morning, with the Dow leading the way, but not quite matching the sizable gains of European and Asian equities. Interestingly enough, during today's rally, yields have held steady so far indicating that it's not so much of a bond sell-off that is causing this equity rally. Leading housing ETFs like ITB and XHB continue to post new records as a result of a booming housing market. As you may remember, U.S. existing home sales experienced a month-over-month increase of 24.7%, shattering expectations by 10 whole percentage points. Building permits as well also increased dramatically by 18.8%. That's the third highest monthly change on record. Same with U.S. housing starts, which increased at a 22.6 month-over-month rate. Altogether, the Census Bureau and the Housing and Urban Department reported 1.495 building permits, 1.496 housing starts, and 1.28 million housing completions for the month of July. That's seasonally adjusted, of course. So the momentum of the urban exodus is on full display here, as cities are burdened by the fallout of COVID-19. And then ultra-low interest rates, too, are no doubt playing their part to entice many buyers to make that leap and attain the milestone of home ownership. By the way, tomorrow Mike Green is going to be speaking to Christina Ramirez, who's a professor of biostatistics at UCLA. They're going to be talking about how COVID data is measured and interpreted. It's a really important conversation, so stay tuned for that. And with that, let's go over to Ash and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back, Ed. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and you know, Ash, I, I, the first thing I wanted to ask you if you, I, I know that you were watching the uh, Bayern Munich uh, game against uh, Paris Saint Germain. Uh, what'd you think? Is that soccer? Because I can't pronounce any of it. <laughs> it was the Champions League final. Uh, Bayern, they won for the sixth time. Very good game, I might say. Is that the, the second league? The third league? <laughs> it is the most important league in, in all of... Uh, I mean, the best teams in the world are go to Champions League matches. Ah, I see. You're going to have to write me up cliff notes before the show starts or I'm not going <laughs> to... Ed, you're back from vacation. And... In honor of your new return, we're trying an experimental format where we're just going to do a massive brain dump of all the stories that we found interesting uh, over the last week or so. Yeah, I like this uh, this concept, Ash, uh, the concept that we can just run through it 
you know, give and take, and then you can stop, you know, stop the clock when we're running long and then go to the next story and how it's relevant just from a macro perspective. Yeah, there's a lot. And and it's good to just jump right in. So let's just hit it. So there's a story today in the FT, the Financial Times, about the gap between the haves and the have-nots increasing sharply, the K-shaped recovery. Peter Atwater has been on Real Vision many times. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Uh, the whole K-shaped recovery thing from Peter Atwater, it's all about the, um, he's the one who came up with the whole concept. It's all about the bifurcation. That's the term that we always use, that we've been using a lot. I think it's a great term because when you think about it, really just look at companies as an example in terms of the haves or the have-nots in terms of who's doing well in the stock market and who's not doing well. I think of it also in terms of economies of scale and economies of scope. I was just thinking about this earlier today that even if you are a, a restaurant, if you have economies of scale and you have economies of scope, that is, as you're in different markets, you might be able to weather the storm in a way that a, re a single restaurant wouldn't be able to. You have more flexibility in terms of your, your, uh, your power, your purchasing power, the amount of money behind you, and you also have different places that you can put your money going forward. And I think for me, that means that the, 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 stronger will, the strong will get stronger and the weak will potentially go out of business. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in keeping with Atwater's story, he talks about this contrasting big cap tech companies uh, against the, the struggling over leveraged brick and mortar retailers who have experienced it. So it's the two legs of the K straight down for people who've been struggling and straight up uh, for those that are doing well. You know, I saw something today. I can't remember where I saw it, but Tesco, the British uh, retailer, you think of them as similar to uh, Safeway or Piggly Wiggly, whichever company you uh, shop for. And they're adding 16,000 jobs in the UK because they're leveraged to the new economy. Uh, even though they have huge brick and mortar, we think of them as being very brick and mortar in the same way that we would, you know, this the Walmarts or the Safeways of the world. They are adding jobs. So when you talk about this, this K-shaped recovery, really the big companies, many of them are going to be on the upside of that K Whereas right. it's the smaller companies that are going to be in the downside of the cat. Yeah. You know, talking of which, my friend Carol Markowitz wrote a piece uh, in the New York Post this weekend, a passionate uh, urging to reopen the city of New York. And she talks about exactly this point, the have and the have nots. And she came up with the best name that I've read so far for people like you and me. She called us the pajama class. <laughs> but, you know, like think about New York, all the great little restaurants you have there. Are they going to be replaced by McDonald's and Applebee's? And, you know, uh, uh, TGI Fridays, is that is that the future of of, uh, of restaurants in New York? I mean, seriously. God, I hope not. I mean, it could well be that, you know, a lot of the places that you want to eat, especially once we move back inside, when we don't have the outside dining that we have now. Right. Uh, th th they can't make it. Yeah, I'm short-term pessimistic, maybe even intermediate-term pessimistic, but I think on a long enough time horizon, New York comes back, and it comes back because it is a city uh, of immigrants, it's a city of strivers, a city of people who want to make stuff happen, and I think eventually the mom-and-pop stores come back. But there could yeah. be a lot of suffering between now and then. Yeah, there could be, and I, and I hope that that's true what you say, because that's what we want to see, definitely. 
Yeah. So moving on, next story. Uh, Bloomberg, America's college towns are facing an economic reckoning. It's an interesting story. It's talking about something that actually builds on the same points that we just made here. Uh, the idea that college towns, physical uh stores, uh, restaurants, taverns, these types of things in colleges are struggling dramatically. There's a, a story about uh, a hospitality group that owns six bars and restaurants in State College, Pennsylvania. You sports fans will know that, of course, is the home of Penn State. Uh, look, Penn State sent kids home in March. Obviously, this year's future is uncertain. There could potentially be a lot of pain for college towns. What are your thoughts, Ed? Yeah, you know, this one hits home for me because my wife, she's a Penn Stater, uh, I went to Dartmouth undergrad, and I remember when she saw our football stadium, she laughed at it and said that it looks about as big as my high school football stadium. Yeah. And I know, you know, I'm a big Penn State fan because I have to glom onto something. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that, that's something to glom onto. We go to all their tailgates, et cetera. They went through the hard times of the Joe Paterno uh, you know, um, the uh, I forgot the guy's name who was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was a, a, a big problem. And, you know, when that happened, it, it hit the local economy and they actually had to close down certain uh, sports because they were being cross subsidized by the football program. Yeah. I think that it's a big uh, problem for the school. Um, not just the school, but the surrounding town. State College is is nothing without uh, Penn State. I mean, it was basically created for Penn State. The whole uh, community uh, revolves around that, and uh, to a large degree, it revolves around the football. The, the Big Ten, they're not having football this year because of COVID. That's going to be a huge hit. You know, people like myself, who last year, the year before, the year before that came up and went to the tailgates, I, I don't even go to the games. I just go to the tailgates. Uh, seriously, that's not going to happen. So yeah. that, that's a big loss. And I think that you'll see this in a lot of different places. What's your take on this, this, this well, particular story? Yeah, you know, so first of all, with Penn State, it's a, it was a terrible story for Penn State. So so many great people in that community, and it just felt like they had their souls ripped out of them. A terrible and sad story. You know, my feeling is a little bit broader. I look at this and I think of why are we still talking about colleges and universities as a place? Right. Here it is, 2020. We're rethinking every structure in American society. We have protests in the streets. And yet no one is talking about how incredibly biased education is, how incredibly expensive education is, and the, all of the sort of potential elitist uh, connotations that go along with that. And, and I'm not a hater. But look, you and I went to, I think, four uh, liberal arts colleges in New England between us. You know, why should kids who aren't fortunate enough to be born in the right zip code have their future determined by geography, right? Kids who are born in the inner city, kids who are born in, in rural Appalachia, why shouldn't they have the same opportunities as the rest of us? I think the idea of what colleges, what universities are, should be virtualized. Look at what we're doing right now. Hey, Ed, if they'll give us a show, anything is possible, <laughs> right? You know, I, I spoke to this guy, Bill Irby. Um, I think it aired uh, the week, the last week I was uh, here. Uh, about exactly that. That you know, that was one of the, his big takeaways. This is a, an opportunity, he said, to go virtual. I looked at it as in, you know, why would I pay forty thousand bucks or more to go to university when I'm not even there? I mean, I'm not even partying with my friends. At you know, which is part of the experience. Uh, forty thousand? Are you kidding me? Uh, and he was saying, look, you know, um, this is where things are potentially headed. We might be seeing, you know. The, the the change. And just think about it. Education is a thing that's been going up more than the cost of living uh, every year. Uh, and so perhaps this puts a dent into that. Um, 
and we'll see a, a, a seismic shift, if you will. Well, that's exactly right. If you look at those charts of CPI by category, it's two things. It's healthcare and it's education that are spiraling completely out of control. You know, education should be something in America. This is something that a battle that we had in the previous century, uh, making public education free to everyone. And uh, it would be great if some of that spirit could come back and infuse public education at the higher level, at the at the post-secondary level, at the college level. Look, there's so much talk. We're capitalists. We believe in expanding, making the blessings of capitalism available to everyone. Uh, and the reality is that more open education rather than talking about how we're going to slice up the pie and how we're going to take money from people who are doing well, would it be great to empower everyone to succeed at the same level uh, that you and I have been fortunate enough to in our lives? Yeah, we'll, we'll see if this is the uh, the time when we uh, we have that uh, reckoning for the education uh, um, uh, gurus, if you will, the, the, the schools. But I think that uh, I'm not, it's just not worth it. If it's going to be virtual, you really have to offer something amazing uh, that's different if you're, you're going to have people pay forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year. Yeah. Well, we offer something amazing right here on RVDB for far less than that. <laughs> Definitely. The change is right now the technology has made it possible. And I think the second point is kind of what you were alluding to, which is that there's been a break. There's been a kind of a nonlinearity, a discontinuity. People, the paradigm is shifting. People begin to question things. You begin to wonder why things were done the old way. Uh, and hopefully this will be something that will make it more accessible. Now, you know, uh, we have this uh, this list of different things that we're looking at. I see the third thing on the list is uh, about scientists uh, doubting uh, convalescent plasma that's touted by Trump. Uh, as a breakthrough coronavirus treatment, I have absolutely nothing to provide in terms of this particular topic. So I'm going to turn it over to you to tell me what this is all about. Like, how is it even relevant to uh, to what we're talking about here today? Well, I guess in the sense that politics and this virus, unfortunately, infuse everything with with regard to markets. Uh, it's an interesting story. The FDA granted emergency uh, use designation to this particular treatment. Uh, and now there's some question about whether or not it is going to be something that is going to be as effective as it was touted to be. You know, I, I also was thinking about this because I watched a few minutes of the convention earlier today. Uh, I watched Donald Trump giving a speech. Uh, and, you know, watching him speak, my thought was, uh, look, you may like him, you may dislike him, but he's incredibly effective at reaching his base when he speaks directly to them. He was at the top of his game. Uh, you may love or you may hate what he had to say, uh, but he was really connecting. And the other thing, you know, I'm guilty of this, like many people. I read his quotes in the New York Times and in the Washington Post. And when you see them written in print, they sound completely disjointed. And I was reminded listening to him speak, you know, he and my father are about the same age. He's from Queens. My dad's from Brooklyn. They have this weird style of being able to weave something together where if you took a print out of it, it wouldn't make any sense. But when he says it, he's effective at delivering the message. So that that's your take on that particular story that uh, you got to, you know, look at him in a different way as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, my take is just that he's effective at reaching his audience when he speaks directly to them. And I think that uh, if you take the New York Times sort of view of it and you just read the quotes and then you read the analysis of the quotes, it doesn't really reflect what he's actually doing when he's speaking to his voters. Again, you may love or hate what he's saying to them, but he's effective at doing that for that audience. The question is whether or not his base has grown or shrunk and whether he'll be able to turn him out on election day. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, uh, just to go to the next uh, topic that we're going to be talking about today, uh, I want to uh, repeat what we were thinking about in the first topic. When we're talking about the gap between the haves and the have nots, really uh, the subcurrent in that was about cities being dead. Um, and this is something that we've been thinking about here 
there's this current that, you know, our city's dead, is New York dead kind of thing. And this next uh, topic that I have here, which is about two home builder ETFs hitting record highs after the the U.S. housing data beat, I think is interesting because, uh, you know, one, you know, you look at existing home sales, they're through the roof. Uh, People are buying new homes. They're also buying different homes. They're going out to different places. They're going not to the city, but to the distant suburbs. I think, you know, they call them the exurbs uh, that are way far out there where you have more land. uh, You can get bigger house, uh, you know, so that you could do different things inside the house. I don't know. Is this a um, a fad? Is it a trend? and also, how long is it going to last? That's my question. But, you know, home builders are definitely uh, benefiting from this. This is one of the segments of the economy that's doing really well. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, I'd say let's put up the charts because it's interesting to see. So the first one, uh, of course, is the iShares U.S. Home Construction ETF. uh, Trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker ITB, up 150% since March. Second chart, the Spider S&P Home Builders ETF trades under the ticker XHB. Second verse, same as the first, up 125% since March. Look, uh, these are absolutely enormous jumps. That's my sense. When I, when you look at that, it's hard to come away with any other opinion. Uh, is this something that's based in reality uh, or is this something that's just based on uh, short-term momentum trade? It seems to me more like the latter than the former. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I don't know and because uh, uh, I don't follow them closely enough, but to the degree that you thought that home builders were going to be beaten down and they got beaten down um, in February, March, Maybe that was an overcorrection, and now people are seeing they're not part. The home builders are not part of the the bottom part of the K. They're part of the upside of the K, if you will. So you know, trading down into the bottom of the K, and then moving away from the energy sector, or moving away from industrials, and then now up toward where the technology stocks are. So if you believe in, I'm not. I'm not a true believer that this is uh, this is a permanent sort of uh, of move. But at a minimum, the inner to the middle suburbs, I could really believe that people are going to start to prefer that to, you know, there was a big push towards uh, city living. I can believe that there is some degree of permanence where people are like, okay, we want it to be somewhat uh, city oriented, but not quite as city oriented as it had become earlier. Yeah. Flip side of the coin, devil's advocate, higher than it was in February on both of those ETFs. Right, yeah. I mean, that that tells you that they're, they're winners as opposed to losers so far. And and by the way, this is big for the economy. I mean, with home builders are, 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 are adding to the economy. They're creating more economic activity. If this weren't happening, uh, you know, things would be worse than they are now. And typically, that's a bellwether for economic impulse in the economy when the home builders come back. Right. I guess another uh, counter theory would be everything right now is just completely insane. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I do uh, buy into that. I, you know, I'm looking down through our things. I think that we, we have something on Tesla coming up, so we can talk about that with regard to Tesla. I think that's an interesting one. Yeah, let's jump ahead. Uh, so story today, uh, this is a CNBC story, Joel Greenblatt on Tesla saying uh, in regard to the price, I really can't explain it. I think there's a lot of speculation in the market, and I think some of it's there. I really can't explain it. Right. You can't explain it. I mean, shares of Tesla, they've gained four over uh, 400 percent this year. Um, you know, it trades at uh, 2,105, 53 percent gain in less than two weeks, according to the story. Yep. Uh, that's just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. there's there's no you you can put you can spin any story that you want in terms of you can you do flips and hurdles and so forth and try to get your mind around the whole concept and say that this is rational. It's not rational, not yeah. under any circumstances whatsoever. Uh, the, the, the prospects for Tesla have not changed that much in this last year. This is a perfect example of, you know, the mania side of markets. It definitely is a mania. Um, and usually manias end in a, in a bad way for some people. Some people are going to get in at levels that will will get them crushed and and that's how i'm seeing a tesla in particular right now yeah and that's the perfect transition isn't it right to talk about how things just seem a little bit crazy 400 percent on the year uh 50 plus percent on two weeks that's from 1374 in the close today 2014 down 1.75 percent 35.8 points on the day this is coming off a five for one split that means potential uh you know, for for a rally that we've seen in other stocks during this period, obviously no true economic activity there. Also, fourth straight quarter of profits, which qualifies them for eligibility in the S and P 500 index. Also, potentially something that could drive higher prices based on some of the conversations we've had on passive indexation on this channel. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of Tesla, one is evaluation relative to peers like uh, GM, uh, Ford. Uh, I think uh, VW, Toyota, I've, I've seen something where you take them all together and they're still worth more uh, by a significant margin, a multiple. And, and then people come up with the theory that Tesla's not just about uh, the, a comparison there. They're also about the infrastructure. It's like Apple in the sense that, you know, they make the entire ecosystem. They're not just making the, the car which is like making the phone. They're making everything associated with that, including the battery. They're getting a much a larger percentage of the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I find it hard to uh, justify um, the level of price change, the relative level of valuation for Tesla. And I think it's a perfect example of what I consider, you know, the whole fat tail phenomenon, why it exists. If you think that prices in stocks move at a relatively random um, way, in a re relatively random way, they do in the middle of the curve. And if you have a bell curve of different uh, outcomes, yes, in the middle of the curve they do. But when stocks move to the second and third standard deviation moves relative to past moves, there's a herding mentality that comes into play. There's a momentum that comes into play. And psychology really takes over. And usually what happens is, as you move into one tail of the bell curve, that that's a very fat po portion, and you have extreme moves there, and then it just moves right back to the other side, an extreme down move on the other side. You know, so this is exactly what we saw in the NASDAQ days. 
that you saw massive uh, up moves, you know, tail end of the of the curve and then a massive down move on the other side. So that's what I'm expecting to happen. Just an absolute meltdown. Um, and eventually, you know, if it's a real company in the same way that Amazon was a real company, yeah. it'll come back and you'll and you can make your money. But there will be pain in, in the interim. Uh, who's going to stick it out? Who's going to be over margined? We'll find out. You know, Ed, you read my mind. Uh, I was actually going to go there as well with Amazon. Look, it, you know, there were periods of I think about three years where if you owned Amazon, you were a loser. Hard to believe, but after the after the meltdown in uh, 2000, that was the case for several years back to back. Uh, and uh, Tesla could certainly be the same case. I should say. Uh, Greenblatt goes on in his conversation with Andrew Ross Sarkin to mention uh, froth in markets and low interest rates is driving it. But look, let's switch gears uh, to uh, to the uh, opposite end of your television dial and talk about Bloomberg. Tesla's Model 3 is doing what other EVs have not, retain value, story. Uh, post the chart. Take a look at this. Uh, so if you look at the rate at which uh, other luxury vehicles depreciate, Tesla is leading the pack. This suggests potentially uh, a long-term value play for Tesla. People love the cars. Obviously, they're holding on to it. There's no better kind of index of whether or not you really care about a product than how willing you are to part with it. And that's something that we can measure uh, in terms of the depreciation. So this chart would suggest that there is some real organic uh, value in the sense that people really like the product that this company is producing. Again, has nothing to do with the stock price. You could talk about uh, how insane it is for something to go up 400% in the year and still believe that the underlying value proposition for the company is fundamentally sound. Gets a lot of questions about how fast they can scale, how big the total addressable market is, but there does seem to be some value in terms of actual consumer demand for the underlying product. Well, yeah, you, you read my mind when you made that last point. This is a David Samra point. You know, he's a guy who I interviewed. He runs, you know, some tens of billions of dollars of, uh, in a value fund. And his point is it's not the company, though. It's the price. Any company at the right price uh, makes sense. You know, as a value investor, obviously, you want to have uh, the company at, a right, at the right price um, relative to, you know, intrinsic value of that company. Uh, and, and and obviously, uh, if you're a longer term investor, you want the intrinsic value to have the potential to increase over time. But Tesla is fully priced and more given uh, what its prospects are. It, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have great prospects on, on some level, but, you know, the, it's fully priced uh, and more, as I said. Fully priced is the euphemism of the century here for you. <laughs> and by the way, if you haven't seen Ed's David Samara piece, go take a look at it. It's a terrific uh, clinic on how value investing is actually done by a practitioner of it. A terrific piece. Let's switch gears real quick, go into a speed round here, uh, talking about distortions, talking about things that don't seem to look right. Here's a Wall Street Journal article called Money Funds Wave Charges to Keep Yields from Falling Below Zero. Uh, you know, BlackRock, Fidelity, JPM, Asset Management have all cut their money market fees to zero uh, in an attempt to keep their money market funds from going negative. Uh, you know, when banks are, when was the last time uh, if you have a fixed rate mortgage, for example, uh, you get a note from your bank in the mail saying, hey, Ed, because you're such a great guy, we're going to cut your payment. It doesn't happen unless there's a clearly compelling reason to do so. And the compelling reason to do so here is that the three-month uh, treasury bill is yielding, uh, is yielding nine basis points right now. Uh, EFFR, effective federal funds rate, the volume weighted mean median of overnight lending uh, that banks lend to each other at, also at nine basis points. Front of the curve, 
totally flat. Uh, you know, this is a real challenge uh, for banks to maintain the uh, the integrity of these markets. So they're cutting, in my view, at least they're they're cutting uh, their fees to uh, keep them from uh, you know to keep them remaining uh, viable. Well, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of uh, quantitative easing. Uh, you know, I saw it when the last uh, recession happened. I remember that my mom, she was invested in a bunch of uh, um, CDs, you know, certificates of a deposit at her bank, and they were yielding something, you know, in the order of five or six percent. And when it came time to roll them over, the, you know, they were paying out 50 basis points or one percent or whatever it might have been at the time, a ridiculous amount of uh of interest. If you're a retiree, as she was at that time, and you were counting on that money as a way to, uh, you know, have some income to supplement uh, your retirement, suddenly you have to have a different strategy. And that and that's what's called reaching for yield, or in this case, uh, um, you know, taking on more risk. That's what the Fed is trying to do. And, and they're going to achieve that by keeping rates low. What they're achieving is effectively pricing people out of one market and forcing them into another market. This is a perfect example of how that happens. Money market funds so low that the fees eat up so much of the, that you could lose your principal and the, the managers are forced to uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's yeah. a situation for me that the, this is my takeaway that you know, the Fed is getting what it wants, which is forcing people into higher risk, higher duration assets. Yeah. And a strategy that exactly, as you suggest, has risk come with it. And that's the perfect real world example. By the way, 600 over 9, 66x. That's the difference. 66x. Right. Yeah. That's a lot. Pretty massive. Uh, staying with the Wall Street Journal, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg stoked fears about TikTok. So basically, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has publicly spoken about this before, and apparently the uh, the story is that uh, Mark Zuckerberg tried to convince the government that uh, TikTok was effectively uh, not a great thing for the country. I mean, you know, if you can convince the government to intervene with your competitors, why wouldn't you, I guess, maybe the uh, the takeaway from that. Definitely. Yeah. So I think that the it'll be, this is interesting to see because, you know, buy American versus uh, do what's right. Um, you have two different strands going on. What Mark Zuckerberg is basically saying is, is look, you know, you guys want to uh, whack us over the head. The Europeans are whacking us over the head to a certain degree. Uh, we're an American company. Th one of the reasons that um, the S&P 500 is outperforming other indices is because it's heavily weighted towards companies like us. If you uh, bite the hand that feeds you, that is us, we Facebook, then you're effectively screwing over uh, the uh, the ability for the American economy to outperform. That That's, in a sense, what his message is. Very self-interested. I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not this message um, bears fruit to the degree that the Trump administration has taken TikTok on. We can't say that it's because Mark Zuckerberg was there in some capacity, but it may be that he had some influence on policy. Yeah. 
it seems it seems highly likely that uh, that that would at least be an attempt that he would make. And look, we also don't know what's behind the story. Uh, he may have more compelling data than we do to suggest that it is something that's potentially problematic uh, for security reasons, for infrastructure reasons, for things that he has access to that we simply don't. Uh, but I think it's probably fair also to maybe chuckle a little and be cynical about trying to get the government to suppress your competitors. Yeah, uh, if you can, if you can do it, do do you do it? Do you want to get away with it? Is is that how you want to win? That's that's one of the questions. I mean, you know, from a businessman's perspective, is is that is that how it works? Uh, are are those the games that you want to play? Mark Zuckerberg, he wants to play those games. Yeah, entirely possible. Final story here, Ed, coming to us from Bloomberg. I really enjoyed this one. Social influencers uh, feed the Robin Hood hunger for investing 101. And there's a story uh, about a a 22-year-old kid uh, who's got a channel up that he is doing on TikTok where he's doing explainers. Gotta love the kid. Gotta love the hustle. Uh, we Great story. But, you know, really investing based on advice you got on TikTok, maybe not such a great idea. You know, I find I like it how we're going from Facebook trying to shut TikTok down to uh, Robin Hooders getting their investment advice from TikTok, from social influencers. Right. I mean, the the only thing I think about that story is I look at this as emblematic of where we are right now in the same way that people who were relatively novice investors during the whole breakout of the internet, they needed to know, you know, what's the story? Are these good companies? Same thing here. People want to know, is the run-up in Tesla, is the run-up in Nikola, are, are these uh, sustainable over the longer term? Help me out. They're, they're turning to social influencers to do that. I, I'm skeptical, obviously, but that's that's what's happening. Yeah, I, I join your skepticism. I, I hope uh, that uh, these folks are thinking about sizing their positions and hedging. I'm a little bit skeptical that they are. Uh, but we hope that people don't experience pain doing this. But look, you know, you and I uh, started out in that uh, same time period in the 1990s, uh, and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun for us, and and we're still here. So hopefully, people will take some lessons away from this about what markets are uh, and why they're interesting. Yeah, for me, uh, I think that what you should do is you should bookmark uh, things like this, bookmark these specific stories. So that, you know, three years or four years from now, when the environment has changed, you can look back and say, there it is. That that's what was going on in the year 2020. <laughs> what a perfect way to end it. I would just add a new format for us. Let us know what you think. We might do more of this in the future, depending on what your thoughts are. So any final thoughts, Ed? Yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, like just firing through this. These are the stories of the day. This is what's going on right now. What, you know, the financial media is feeding us. We're giving you a macro, you know, our take on what it means just from a macro perspective in terms of where we are in the economy and the markets. I enjoyed talking about it this way. Uh, So I I hope that uh, viewers enjoyed it as well. Perfect place to end it. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Talk to you soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.